I'm not a handy person, so when things break around the house, usually I put on my, you know, I pull out my man card and I'm like, I'm gonna fix it. And then I get really frustrated and YouTube a bunch of things, and then we just have to end up calling somebody and it costs us more. Uh, because I just, I'm not good at that stuff. This uh, past May to June um, was one of the most stressful times um, for me personally. Because I get back from Canada with our mission trip, and on Monday, I have to meet an um, AC repairman because our house is now 80 degrees inside the house. That's about what it feels like right now. Try sleeping in this. You know, it's miserable. So I call the guy, and we have a home warranty. So we're thinking, okay, it's going to cost us 50 bucks. We pay the deductible. They come and take care of everything. Well, what happens actually is these home warranty companies are really good at writing loopholes. And so as a result, um, the guy opens up and goes, oh, there's rust on this 16-year-old system. I can't do anything on it. And so then we get to write a check that costs more than my car's worth to get a new AC system because that's really not a negotiable um, op option of a house. Well, then a week later, um, Carlin's drying clothes and the dryer just stops working. So then we get another trip to go to Lowe's to then purchase a washer and dryer. About two weeks later, uh, I get a call from Carla while I'm at work, and she says, um, the garage is flooded, and it's seeping into our master bath right now. You need to probably come home. Okay, I'm on my way. Again, the home warranty company has some very well-crafted statements, and we get footed with the bill. Here's why I tell you that. That May to June was really frustrating on us. And, and here's the deal. It wasn't that God hasn't taken care of us and we weren't able to pay our bills. That has nothing to do with it. Here's what was hard for me. My greed came to the surface this summer, and it has remained ever since. See, I was anxious and burdened and doubting and worrying and wondering and questioning all the time and it began to cause problems in my relationship, both at home and at work and with students, because I was allowing my greed, and for savings accounts that I never wanted to be touched, now I had to go into action. But I don't tell you those are minor things. Here is where my greed has been fully exposed. My greed has been exposed to me over the last month. As we have kicked off the year, and I've realized that in my goal and desire to expand the kingdom and to see lives change, I become very competitive, and I become very prideful and arrogant, and I become a person who unhealthily seeks numbers. Not because I want to see spiritual growth, but because I want to see numerical growth within our ministry. And I can count it, and there is holy language in there. But what I have realized is that in an unhealthy way, I don't pursue continuing relationships, and instead, I pursue how can I find a new student to get plugged in, because then people will be proud of me, people will think I'm doing a good job, everybody will go, wow, look at what's going on at First Baptist. And so then I ride the roller coaster most Sunday afternoons of pride when things are good and exceed my expectation. And then depression, or not full-on depression, don't hear that. Uh, that's a real thing, and that's not what I was dealing with. Disappointment. Frustration. Greed 
has begun to show itself in my life in ways that scares me. In ways that are real. Here's one thing. Elizabeth, will you turn those lights on? It's just a little dark, and so I just want to go to see y'all. There, that's a lot better for me. Hopefully that's better for you. My greed has been exposed to me in a lot of ways. But here's what I've learned. I began about three weeks ago starting to confess my greed. Starting to tell Carlin, hey, I'm really struggling with greed and I've done it in so many ways. Starting to tell Troy, our pastor, hey, greed's kind of rocking me right now. Like, I know that I am not just wanting things, good things to happen. I'm wanting only the best things and I have an unquenchable desire and it is unhealthy. And then... I've also admitted this or confessed this to my cycling partner. And here's what I've learned. I have grown to like confessing, but I don't really like working on it. Sammy Rhodes calls this fake vulnerability, where we confess our sins. And Davis, don't worry anything about that tonight on the screens. But fake vulnerability and fake vulnerability is where we confess our sins. And we love to confess our sins, but we hate to repent of our sins. To turn our lives. To change how we are acting. See, I like saying, oh, I have something to be working on, something for you to be praying for. What I don't like is changing how I'm acting. I like being vulnerable and telling people, and maybe you've been in that place where you have gotten so accustomed to saying, this is my struggle, this is my temptation, this is the thing that I'm always drawn to, here is the cross that I bear, here is the thorn in my side, here is that thing, and we've gotten really good at confessing it. But we've become calloused <laughs> to repenting and working some of you last night maybe told someone something you've never said before in your life out loud and admitted. The hope tonight is that we don't just leave you in confession, but we go, what's now? What's next? How do I respond? How do I repent? How do I not just confess and say, oh yeah, I'm bad. Tell me I'm good enough. And go, all right, I want to live holy in response. So the questions before we ever start tonight is how badly do you want to change? How badly do you want to change? What are you willing to risk? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give up? Because you don't want to sit in that sin, in that habit, in that addiction, in that thing anymore. How badly do you want to change? For some of us it may say, I might have to end a relationship. For some of us it might be, I've got to download this app or I've got to go to no data on my phone. For some of you, maybe I need to go and reconcile with a person that I know I've treated terribly. How badly do you want to change? Because if you don't want to repent, confession is just going to get old. It's going to get easy, honestly. So tonight, how do we respond our text is 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. I'll read it as clear as I can. Hopefully you can see your Bibles tonight. 
1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor in Ephesus. Paul is writing to encourage him, to tell him to stay on track and to continue to fight against the heresies that come in. Paul is going to write on him to tell him, do not allow others to look down on you because of your youth, but stand firm and be leading out in your teaching and in your works. He's going to tell him that this word is trustworthy and true, deserving of spending our time studying. And it will speak and convict and rebuke us. But here's what he says, verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I have received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And then here's the crux of our talk tonight, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Paul starts by acknowledging his past. He says, I was a, a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of God. But remember, when we meet Paul, Paul is the best of the best in the Judaical system. He is the Jew that every Jew wants to be. He'll lay out his resume, his reputation in Philippians 3. He says, if anyone thinks they have a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Hey, you want to show your SAT scores? Let's go. Hey, you want to lay out your resume? I got you. All right? And then he says, just in case you're wondering and you think you measure up, listen to this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he gets specific. He says, how about how good am I at the law? A Pharisee. The best. How, how zealous am I? How passionate am I to honor God and to live for him? I persecute Christians. How about righteousness under the law? Blameless. See, Paul was good at following the system. He lived good enough in his system. And then he meets his Savior, who begins to point out that, hey, yeah, this grace and truth that I've come in, this love and forgiveness that I've shown you, I want you to show others, and I want them to experience it. And so Paul is now transformed when he remembers back to his old ways. He acknowledges his past. I wonder how many nights Paul goes to sleep with the image of Stephen in his mind. As Paul stands back and allows those kind of under him to go and throw rocks at this man until he dies. Does Paul see his face bloody and bruised as he is laying there gasping for a final breath? Can Paul remember that in his past? Does he remember that as he pins these words to Timothy? Is Paul haunted by those choices? By those families that he forever tore open? As he ripped a father or a mother from their kids and said, you are going to jail, you are going to be abused and beaten. Does Paul's history remind him of the things that he has done? I think absolutely. I was this, a blasphemer, a persecutor. But Paul also remembers his transformation. He acknowledges his past, and I hope that you sat there last night. We were confessing. What is confessing? It's realizing and admitting to God what he already knows. 
Last night, we were realizing and admitting to God what he already knows. Yeah, you've been naked this whole time. Who told you? Tonight, Paul has shown us he acknowledges his sin, his past, and now he also remembers his transformation. He says, I received mercy for my actions and unbelief, my ignorance. And then he says that I've also received a grace that overflows. Sammy Rhodes, once again, he says, you and I will never risk vulnerability until we believe in a grace that loves you as you are, not as you pretend to be. He'll go on to say that we must believe, when grace must move from concept to reality. See, for many of us in here, we could give you a definition of grace, but we've never experienced it. For many of us, we talk about it as a theory, but we never want to lean on it in our life. Grace is something that is church word that we hope we don't need. We live every single day believing that we can earn our own salvation. Because at the end of the day, I'm better than most. And isn't God loving and kind and merciful? Paul will go on to say, a grace that overflows for me. I love that picture. An overflowing grace. I see a faucet that just keeps going and the cup is just filling and filling and filling. I see a waterfall that just keeps falling. I see a well that's not ever drained dry. I see a spring that is always coming up. This grace is overflowing. And you know, and Dean, I'm just, I can't help but look at you back there. You know every time we do communion together, right? I don't want to waste any time with that half sip of grace, right? We always want what? Two gulps of grace. Two gulps of grace. We've got to take two gulps of grace because the grace of our Lord towards us is overflowing. But has that become a reality or is that just a concept? Is that something we see or is that something we know and we have felt and we believe? We have to move grace from theoretical to experiential. When we confess, we know we are forgiven. Paul says grace overflowed for myself, and I want you to know it overflows for you. And then we get to the crux of where we are tonight. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Just going to break that down very, very quickly. First of all, this saying is trustworthy. It's certain. It's sure. It's reliable. It is true. It is guaranteed. This saying is trustworthy. What does that mean? This is a saying that I can believe because it is true. And then he takes it a step further. Not only is it true, it deserves full acceptance. What does that mean? That we can't just halfway accept it. Too often, I've halfway accepted it. And I'm going to share with that a little bit as I close tonight. But too often, I have said, yes, I believe in a grace for you that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what is in your history, that God will forgive you and wipe you clean of every sin. But then shame tells me that I'm not included in that. I have accepted. I accept it for you and not for me. For some of you, you go, 
yeah, I'm not that bad. So, yeah, God will forgive me, but you are too vile, too terrible, too awful. I think you kind of yeah, lost your chance. But this saying is deserving of full acceptance. I can believe it, and I must believe it. And what is it that we believe? That Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. This was his mission. Ever since the fall and before the fall, when God created the world, he knew Christ was coming. Plan A all along has been to send his son. It wasn't just for Jesus to show up and just kind of take inventory of how things are going on the earth. But it was to save sinners. See, this was his mission. This is why he stepped down from heaven so that we can step into heaven. This is why he came to endure and die. Jesus surprised the Pharisees in Luke 5, 31 32 when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross and proclaiming it is finished, guess what? It is finished. When Jesus uh, rises on the third day, conquering death, the grave, Satan, and sin, it's conquered. He has won. Jesus spent his life to save ours. This morning I was reading in my devotional time, and all these people are saying, hey, if you're so great, if you're really the Son of God, save yourself. And I wrote down, the one who could save himself chose me instead. The one who could save himself chose to save me instead. That was what Jesus has come to do. That is the goal. He stepped down into heaven. He came to this world to save sinners. And then that final line, this final verse, always gets me. Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. See, I'm expecting him to say I was the foremost, right? I'm expecting him to say, yeah, yeah, remember that past I just told you about in verse 13? Yeah, I was pretty bad. But, G but Paul says here, I am the foremost. Present tense. Right now. See, he's got more salvation points than all of us combined. And yet he is considering himself the foremost of sinners. We are reading his words 2,000 years later. We are memorizing them. We are studying them. We are using them to find salvation. And yet here he is saying, I am the foremost of sinners. He'll say I'm the least of the apostles. I'm a great sinner. See, Paul understands. C.S. Lewis will say, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. You don't really know how bad you are until you've tried to be good. So this is what I want you to know tonight. Not only are you truly loved and fully known, but there's a statement that is, that can be trusted and must be trusted. Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I've asked you this weekend to confess. I've asked you to uncover the dark, deep sins in your life. I've asked you to share what is you've probably kept hidden and kept silent. And tonight I want to do the same thing. 
since I was 11 or 12 years old, I've been fighting a battle against lust ever since. I have had seasons in my life where it's been good and bad. It's taken many shapes and forms, but it's never gone away. Sorry to burst bubbles, but getting a girlfriend doesn't change that. Getting married doesn't change that. Temptation is still all around. Over these last 20 years, there have been seasons in my life where sadly this was encouraged. I can remember haunting memories now of sitting at the lunch table with guys that were in my youth ministry and sharing with each other what we have seen or what done or thought or all of these sort of things. I can remember seasons where I wanted to say, I never want this to happen again, to see this again, and yet, there I was. There were seasons that felt like addiction, where I didn't know how to stop or how to win or how to overcome. There were seasons where things were really good because of the power of the Spirit and accountability in my life. There were seasons of behavior modification that never really ever seemed to last. There were seasons, much like David, where I felt like I was in a good place, and then I became careless. David didn't go out to war, and temptation took root. There are seasons where my carelessness and where my cavalier nature said, oh, you can handle this. There are seasons of strength and weakness, of shame and embarrassment, seasons of pride and judgment of others. There have been seasons in my life where I've experienced all of those things. But if I'm being honest, for much of my life, I have felt unworthy. I've felt like a fake, a fraud, like a liar, living a scam, Shame has told me if I'm ever found out, then it's over. You'll never be loved. You'll never be able to do what you've been called to do. You're not worthy to do this. I mentioned this, when was it, last night or maybe this morning? No, I can't serve Lord Supper because of who I am. What did I think then, that there was some perfectly holy person like serving it? No, it doesn't make sense, but shame told me these things. Shame has threatened me with the loss of uh, a girlfriend or a wife. Shame has threatened me with the loss of a job or a position in a ministry. Shame has threatened me over and over that if this is found out, you'll be ridiculed forever. There's even been seasons of my life where I thought, okay, if I can just overcome this, then I'm good. That I'll be lovable. That I can be acceptable. But there's two things, and this is why I wanted us to be practical tonight. There's two things that I have found to help me fight that battle against lust. And I believe it helps us fight that battle against anything. Whatever your temptation, whatever your elixir is, whatever you're uh, prone to, 
First is confession. And I mean confession beyond just confession to God, but I mean confession aloud to someone else. There have been many instances in my life where I've had to share with a pastor, with a roommate, with a friend, or the worst, with my wife. What I have done, what I have thought, what I have wished for. There have been seasons where I have to say, this is who I am. You know what sucks? Telling your wife. The person whom you said you promised you love forever. The person who you do love dearly. The person who you think is beautiful and gorgeous and all of these things to then tell her, yeah, I chose something that is cheap and worthless. Yeah, that one sucks. But we confess because we bring someone in to help us. We need the power of the Spirit, and we also need the encouragement and the help and the accountability of the brother and sister in our life. I, to this day, will still be texted by Carlin on days that she maybe thinks, hey, this might be an issue today. And I don't know how hard it is on her. I can't imagine it's easy. She'll say, how are things going today? Yeah, that feels like a failure. But it's a step, hopefully, towards victory. Confession opens the door for healing, where grace can be felt, encouragement can be received, and hope can be restored. The second thing that I have found that I think works for every single one of us no matter what your issue is is that truth can combat shame. See, shame needs secrecy and silence. Shame blocks logic. Shame creates fear. Shame tells me i got to get better before I can ever be loved. Shame tells me if I'm ever found out then I am done. But here's the deal, students. Shame is a liar. Really. Truth must be relied on. And so if you've been in a guy's Bible study with me, I've shared this with you, with some of you before. But many years back, I had to write a letter to myself. Because in the moment, shame is the only thing that speaks. It clouds my judgment. It, it robs me of understanding truth. Remember Eve being tempted by the serpent? She says, not only can we not eat it, but we can't touch it or we will die. See, shame or sin has already, and temptation has already clouded her understanding of who God is and how he has set forth his relationship with her. And the same thing happens to me over and over again. So I need to be reminded of truth immediately. And so literally, it's very Dwightish. I wrote a letter to future Jordan. I didn't title it that way. But when I am in a place where shame is speaking and winning, I read this for encouragement and hope. I'm going to read it to you. How can I speak about the grace of God for all men and not feel worthy of it myself? You hear half acceptance there? How can I believe that all men can be saved and then not me? You see how shame speaks? Why do I believe in the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God, but do not accept it in my own life? 
These are the lies that I believe in these moments. I firmly believe that Jesus came to save the least and the lost. But I ruined my chance. In a sense, I've drained the cup of grace. I failed my test. I eliminated myself. Too often I believe that, I say I believe salvation is by grace, but I live as though I have to earn my own righteousness. So here's the hope that I give to myself. Make evident your grace to me, that you accept me as I am, not as I should be. That I can be made clean of anything that I have done or will do. That I cannot outrun your gracious arms, that I cannot fall too far, that you cannot rescue me. My sin is far greater than what I perceive it to be, and yet you love me and accept me still. For a long time, I played the game that how I fought the battle of lust was my scorecard of God's acceptance of me. I legitimately had a little dry erase board that I would mark on each day to show me, am I being faithful? Am I being pure? Am I honoring God in thought, in word, in deed? And I was shocked and terrified and ashamed of how many days I failed. I go on to say, I read your, I read your word and see you use failures like me, yet I don't believe I'm usable. Break me of the pious beliefs and of the thought that I can attain my own goodness, that I can earn my place, that I can create my own salvation. I am unworthy and unable in need of your grace. And then I wrote down at the very bottom, I found this, and this is really the key line for us tonight. You and I do not disqualify ourselves from salvation because at no point do we ever qualify ourselves for salvation. You and I do not disqualify ourselves from salvation because at no point did we qualify ourselves for salvation. No matter if from this day on, I only have pure and holy thoughts. No matter if that battle with lust is finished, the war is over. Guess what? My sin is so great from this day forth even in so many other avenues and so many other ways that I have disqualified myself and I deserve hell every single day, no matter my battle with lust. But so many of us have thought, if I can just get over this, then I'll be good. But no, it doesn't matter. I don't care how many things you get over, you're still deserving of hell. And we still need to believe in that trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance statement that Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So I have two challenges for you as we leave. First, will you confess your sins? And what I mean by that is we confessed last night to God. But James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another, for the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Will you find someone? And not... I know, maybe not even half of the people in here or a third of the people in here may say, I even resonate with the, what you were talking about tonight, Jordan, on lust. That's fine. 
but I know you got something that you're holding in, that you're holding back. I know that you have a temptation that is so prone to get you over and over and over again. You confess that. Find someone who will walk with you in that. And the second thing I have for you is I highly, highly encourage you to find a time when you're in a good headspace, when you know the truth, and when you believe the truth, for you to write yourself that same letter. Mine's in my Google Drive so that I can always pull it up no matter where or where, what I'm going on. I encourage you to write that letter to yourself to remind yourself of truth because in the moment, shame clouds up logic. Jesus says in Luke 17, temptations are sure to come. They ain't going anywhere. But the promises of God are sure to stand. The truth of his word is sure as well. And so will you rest in it? Will you rest in a statement that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance? Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So I have these questions to ask you. Will you believe what is trustworthy? Will you accept what is deserving of being accepted? Will you embrace being fully known and truly loved? Will you risk vulnerability for the sake of transformation? How badly do you want to repent or do you just like to confess? Will you step out of the darkness and into the cleansing and healing light that is found in the overflowing grace of your God and that can be experienced in the encouragement and reminders of your fellow man? And will you listen to the truth and not listen to shame? Let me pray. Marcus and Laura can come up and tonight we are going to sing because we have confessed. Now the question is, will we believe it? Will we trust it? Will we accept it for ourselves, for our neighbor? Will we hold fast to it? If I'm being honest, it's terrifying to tell you what I told you. It really scares me to think that my mom might listen to this, but I also know that for true healing to take place, we have to do this. And if I don't model it, if, I, if I'm above it, it doesn't make any sense. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you step out of the darkness. Some of you may say, hey, I need to go do this right now. And that's okay. But I highly encourage you when we get back this coming week to call somebody up and say, hey, can we grab a meal? Can we talk? Can you come over? Because sin and shame are wrecking my life. And I'm tired of it. 
liar and I keep truth. write down ways that you can remind yourself of truth because shame speaks loudly. Clouds our judgment and our understanding. And we feel that we are unworthy and unlovable and we've ruined our chance and we've lost our hope and everything is over. We remind ourselves of the truth. Truth that saves truth that is more powerful. My hope that you can't walk away from this weekend without having to do with something. William Wilberforce says, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. The burden to be honest and to confess is on you. Will you step into